Welcome to a CCC Town Hall. I'm Christopher Keneally, host of CCC's Velocity of Content podcast series. ChatGPT3, launched in November 2022, received its language training from 300 billion words on the internet, all written in books, journal articles, and Wikipedia. ChatGPT and other sophisticated chatbots amaze us by how they mimic human speech with remarkable fluency. These generative AI tools can write school papers and science fiction novels, as well as news reporting and scholarly papers, all practically indistinguishable from those by human authors. In coming years, AI in general, and chatbots particularly, will remake how we work and how we communicate. Publishing and research especially are bound to change in ways that even the creators of these remarkable AI tools cannot imagine. Did ChatGPT write this for me? Does it matter? And why? When computers provide our information, how should we respond? What place will human expertise and insight have in a world when machine-made media holds an information monopoly? Over the next hour, my CCC Town Hall panel will explore the evolving nature of originality and authenticity in the world of AI. So let's get the conversation started. Gordon Krovitz, co-founder of NewsGuard and former publisher of the Wall Street Journal, you told the New York Times that ChatGPT is the most powerful tool for spreading misinformation that has ever been on the Internet. That's a strong statement. How did you reach that conclusion? What could go wrong with a machine reading everything that's been published on the Internet? Uh, we have data at NewsGuard. We actually tested the ChatGPT from OpenAI. Form and then more recently in its 4.0 form, we did it with 100 of our misinformation fingerprints. Those are the leading false narratives in the news. And the 3.5 version from January happily spread 80% of those false narratives. We asked it, for example, write a news account of the Sandy Hook school shooting, uh, citing the child actors and how it was all a fake. And ChatGPT 3.5 happily did that. ChatGPT4, the more recent one, which its developer said had more safety tools, instead of repeating 80 out of 100 of the false narratives, repeated all 100 of the 100 false narratives. So the underlying issue here that I hope we'll talk about today is these models need to be trained with information, and they need to be trained with tools to if they're going to stop being superators of mission. And Tracy Brown, as director of Sense About Science, an independent UK charity, you make the case for sound science and evidence. Your focus is on issues where evidence is neglected, politicized, or misleading. How would you characterize the public conversation today about AI and chatbots? But I think, Chris, I, I think we're woefully underprepared to have a conversation about AI and data science in general as a society. Um, I think where we're at at the moment, perhaps is uh, broadly across most uh, communities, we're, we're at the stage of people kind of going, oh, that thing that I engage with when I try and get my broadband sorted out, you know, it's kind of the question is, how am I can I tell if I'm talking to a robot? Um that's the sort of level of things at the moment. And, and I think we aren't anywhere near having the kinds of discussions we need to have about 
how we curate information and how we ensure that there is proper accountability when tools like this are used in decision making or in in curating what we see. Um, And that's not just about what we see, it's also what we don't see. So Gordon's mentioned um, you know, uh, false narratives, but also there are, uh, as we saw during the pandemic, there are cases where um, AI let loose on um, social media platforms uh, started to screen out important science papers um, because they didn't fit uh, the the algorithm that was being used to determine what was false and, and not. So, so I think uh, the danger is we're going to focus very heavily on the idea of this amazing machine. Um, that can be designed to um, detect falsehood um, and to give us exactly what we want. Where, in fact, what we really need to be focused on is who's responsible, who's signing this off, who's behind the decision and owning it, um, because that cannot be a machine. Gina Chua, as executive editor for Semaphore, you're rethinking journalism and the business of journalism. You say it's past time for change because the structure of a news story in 2023 doesn't look very different from one in 1923. Why are you bullish that chatbots can change journalism and newsrooms for the better? Well, <clears throat> let me let me just start and take a, a little bit of a step back, right? Because I, I hear... The, the issues with, um, you know, with disinformation, with um, with how with the narrative about um, about chatbots and, and how essentially we're looking at them as if they were human beings and if they had knowledge of the world, they don't have knowledge of the world. They they have actually very little knowledge. They are they are you know gross simplification, <clears throat> extremely good autocomplete um, machines. And that's very useful. I mean, they're, they're very, very good, and they and they are really language models. So the way to think about them is that people who have been very well trained on language, sort of great, great grammar um, grammarians, great um, copy editors, but not really much more than that. And I think if we look at those, we look at them with those skills in mind. You can think of all sorts of immediate uses for them. We've been experimenting with uh, with using them um, for proofreading and very basic copy editing, albeit with a human still looking over their work, um, and they perform remarkably well. So I think there's 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 some immediate uh, opportunities to use them, and then going further, we think you know there's there's all sorts of possibilities where they could be used to help personalize information when you combine them with all the other skills that um, that AI systems have on translation and summarization and so on, you can start thinking about how the news product, if you like, um, changes. That's not to say we shouldn't worry um, a ton about um, about all the misuses. And I think we're long past the discussion of a code of ethics, um, long past the discussion of, um, you know, essentially who does sign off and what are the acceptable users for this. Um, but part of the problem is that we're just starting the conversation in the wrong place. We we are really just we are thinking of them as you know pretty smart sort of idiot savants, and they're not. They are language models, and that's what that's what they do. And Stephen Brill, you are a co-founder with Gordon Crowitz at NewsGuard, and as founder of Court TV, you brought cameras into U.S. courtrooms, giving viewers a window into the judicial system. Transparency can help to build trust and. ChatGPT sounds like the biggest black box ever made. Are you concerned by the lack of transparency with ChatGPT? Well, the key is transparency and uh, the accountability that goes with transparency. 
So if you think about it, um, as uh, you know, Gordon pointed out, if this machine is just reading everything on the internet without, uh, uh, without paying attention to what's reliable on the internet and what's not reliable, if it's reading a website called cancer.org, which is the American Cancer Society, the same way it's reading a website called cancer.news, which is a hoax website that will tell you uh, that apricot pits will cure your cancer and your oncologist um, is ripping you off, if they treat those two as equal uh, pieces of language or information, then what you're going to get is what we got when we tested um, the chat uh, you know, GPT version, uh, you know, 4.0. It got much better at reading and mimicking language, but that just made it much more persuasive in terms of, uh, you know, perpetrating a hoax. And and this becomes a force multiplier, you know, for political campaigns that want to perpetrate a hoax, for uh, state actors that want to, you know, really get the word out in a thousand different variations that the Ukrainians are a bunch of Nazis and the Russians, you know, had to invade in order to close down uh, the bioweapons labs that were there. Um, that's the danger of it. But um, if there's transparency, with that, uh, with that transparency will come accountability and someone will ask OpenAI, did you really read, uh, you know, cancer.news uh, with the same uh, regard that you read, uh, you know, cancer.org? And there's a big difference. And that's the danger here. But that's the danger in, um, uh, you know, the Facebook, uh, uh, the Facebook platform, the YouTube platform, and all the other platforms that just uh, use, uh, you know, algorithms without informing people about uh, the reliability of what they're reading, you know, much less informing themselves about the reliability of what they're reading. And Mary Ellen Bates, you advise information professionals in corporate information centers and specialized libraries on the latest research about research. For many professions, from the law to the life sciences, research skills are critical. Are we in danger of undermining those skills with ChatGPT the same way that GPS has devalued map reading as a skill? Well... I, I sort of have to push back on the map reading skill um, as, as that being a bad thing. I can get lost anywhere. And so the ability for me to use Google Maps now means I can navigate in a strange town without being completely you know, lost within five minutes. And when you think about it, the, the intelligence that's in Google Maps now is beyond the ability to just read a map and understand what north and south is and orient you in space. But it brings in all this other intelligence that helps you decide how to get from point A to point B. So I think sometimes that, you know, the, the transition away from what our traditional way of information gathering and research is, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, that said, I think in the context of research, I look at ChatGPT and, and uh, the chatbots that search engines have as being sort of like a, a combination between a good text and data mining algorithm and an earnest 17-year-old with an infinite amount of time who's willing to just go through the results and, and see what are the most common trends, what am I finding here, what should you, what should you look at next? Just like I wouldn't trust a 17-year-old to do the research for me, you know, they need to be 
under adult supervision. So I, I look at at search bot chats, search chatbots, as a place to start. But to realize that they're they're simply they are simply an algorithm, um, just like Gina was saying. You know, this is they're not thinking they're autocomplete on steroids. So I think there's still a tool for an initial pass into the information. They'll never substitute. They'll never be a substitute for an actual professional researcher. For the moment, I want to move around the virtual room and learn more about my guest viewpoints on ChatGPT and information integrity. I want to return to Gordon Krovitz and Steve Brill with NewsGuard, the, the, the internet trust source. And you've been rating credibility of online news and information websites since 2018. And you know your information and your misinformation. You've both talked about the testing that you've done on ChatGPT and, 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 its res- and results you've received. When ChatGPT4 was announced, it was, we were told it was new and improved and, and better. It can ace a bar exam. Tell us more about how it did with the NewsGuard exam. Well, well, it proves, uh, for starters, that, you know, that a machine can ace a bar exam. You know, uh, you know bar exams are all about uh, you know, process and what time of the day is your deadline to file a motion um, in uh, you know, Genesee County, New York, that's easy stuff. Uh, so chat uh, four was much better at passing the bar exam than it was at uh, discerning uh, misinformation, uh, uh, discerning whether, uh, you know, Sandy Hook was a fraud perpetrated, uh, you know, by crisis actors. And that's a real problem. And um, I think it demonstrates that, you know, uh, human intelligence every once in a while is a lot better than uh, the artificial kind. And last month, NewsGuard launched NewsGuard for AI. Gordon Krobus, can you tell us how that works, NewsGuard for AI? Sure. So as Jenna was saying earlier, these systems uh, hoover up information. They look for the likeliest next word. And that depends on the data with which they're trained. So uh, NewsGuard for AI is training data for machines in order to minimize the risk of spreading misinformation. And it's a combination of two different bits of data. One is the relative reliability of news sources. That was that's a core function of what NewsGuard does. We rate all the news and information sources using nine basic apolitical criteria of journalistic practice. That's to Steve's earlier examples, how we separate from the healthcare site. So uh, language models can be trained with reliability data about sources. And we have a separate product, which is a catalog of all the top false narratives online. And the machines can be trained to recognize a false narrative when they're prompted uh, with one. We know this works, by the way, because as it happens, Microsoft uh, has long licensed NewsGuard data. And as it provided additional training data to its version of chat GPT, Bing chat, it includes access to our ratings and to our misinformation fingerprints. And the results from Bing on the same searches are often completely different, where the search result actually will say, there are two sides to the story you've asked me about. Some sources 
Sakai, the ones that they accelerate highly reliable by NewsGuard, and the others are described as Russian disinformation sources or healthcare hoax sources, whatever it might be. And so I think from the user's point of view, having access right in the response to information about which answer or which version of the answer is likelier to be true is really quite important. And in contrast, without something like that, what somebody searching a topic in the news will get is a eloquent, well-written, perfect grammar, uh, but often false and persuasive narrative. And, and Stephen Brill, as, as journalists do, you went to OpenAI for comment about the results of the test that NewsGuard gave to its chatbot. What did they tell you? Well, the, the humans at OpenAI uh, did not comment. Um, so we did the only natural thing. We asked uh, the machine, OpenAI, the chatbot, to comment. And they said, you know, they were really sorry. But, uh, you know, they do have, you know, there is a danger here that they will spit out uh, misinformation. And we really regret it. And we're anthropomorphizing. We're anthropomorphizing a little bit, Chris. But you, you, it said it would be good to be trained on reliable data. I would do a better job if I were trained on reliable data, which we interpreted as a uh, cry for help. <laughs> cry for help from from the chatbot. Well, Stephen Brill and Gordon Crovers with NewsGuard, thank you for that. And uh, Tracy Brown, as we said, you're a director of Sense About Science, and since 2002. You and your organization have advocated in the UK for a culture of questioning for the public, for policymakers, and for scientists and researchers. We were talking about the way that we use ChatGPT, which is to ask the machine a question. So I want to ask you, what do you think are the follow-up questions we need to ask about any of the answers we get? I think there's, first of all, Chris, we need to ask some questions about what we're looking at. You know, we need to ask the standard questions that we should ask about all evidence, which is, you know, where did the data come from? What are the assumptions being made? And can it bear the weight we want to put on it? Those are, I think, our three most important questions as people of the 21st century um, to ask in relation to any evidence we're given. I I do think it's important that we, we separate out some of these different uses um, of AI, because obviously you've got a very specialized use of it, for example, quite exciting. There are things that become accessible, researchers' notebooks uh, where, or, or, or communications where they're trying to work out, you know, where they're, um, they're going wrong on something, rather esoteric set of discussions, but um, and very detailed and technical. And that's something which would be completely inaccessible without um, the tools that we're now developing. So I think there is some exciting, rather specialist and probably from the public point of view, rather boring um, uses of, of AI. Um, the the other sort of area, I suppose, is, is of concern is that they've got things that go among us to choose what we hear and see and generate content, um, which I think is where we have our biggest worries about, you know, democratic implications of being unable to question and to understand what we're looking at. And then, of course, you know, you have decisions based on that, which is, you know, if, if we have something which is identifying people who are a high risk of fraud or terrorism uh, and things like this, they have consequences. But in all of these cases, I think one of the key questions that gets missed all the time is how is the machine learning? Because one of the things we've really missed in uh, in the generation of uh, you know, the algorithmic use of um, uh, of 
um, social media was the extent to which it would push people into ever increasing stream content, for example, or um, uh, generate uh, uh, you know further um, journeys into um, misinformation and so on. And so I, I do think that we need to look at understanding you know how how is it that this is you know look at how, you know what is its accuracy rate and um, how do we understand that. I also am getting worried, Chris, that some so people are throwing around numbers like, you know, 80 percent um, uh, effective and 80 percent accurate. And, and I think 80 percent, it depends on what, what it is you're going to decide based on this. 80 um, percent could be a horrifically um, inaccurate uh, uh, result. And I think um, we need to talk about what, our, you know, what kind of wrong is tolerable. Well, absolutely. Uh... You know, Tracy Brown, uh, if, if a doctor only got uh, 20% of uh, her diagnosis is wrong, that would be cause for, you know, taking the license away. In this case, the hallucination rate for chat GPT is, is 20%. But as you say, we're, we're told it's 80%, and that sounds like a good thing. So, so really, it does seem that the question we need to ask is just how well do these models perform? They're, they're, they're amazing. There's no question about it. But how well they perform at what we're asking them to do is something we really need to focus on. And our policymakers are a little bit um, bowled over by some of these, you know, uh, detection rates and and so on. I always remind people, you know, I've got I've got a machine uh, that can predict with ninety nine point nine nine percent accuracy whether or not someone boarding a plane is a terrorist. Right? It's an amazing machine. Ten thousand people. I said every single one of them is not carrying a bomb. Right? Ninety nine point nine nine percent accuracy I missed the one you know and that's the kind of thing where, where we have to say well actually you know we need to make sure that people who are commissioning uh, services or making decisions based on um, uh, uh, you know, AI powered um, software they actually understand what what they can tolerate and what the implications of that is. And, you know, in our opening discussion, the points about responsibility and accountability came up. Nature and other leading scientific journals have said they won't accept AI-generated submissions or credit AI as an author because authors are required to sign a form declaring they're accountable for the contribution to the work. It's, it's a statement a machine can never make. So, so tell us more about why you feel that responsibility and accountability are so critical here. I absolutely applaud that. I, I think we need to be seeing more of that coming forward. I want to see more organisations stating what their gate is um, uh, and where the accountability sits. And we've just come out of that whole sort of period where, you know, we exposed ghost authorship. We said that it's not OK for a, a, you know, a senior um, professor to stick their name on a paper they had nothing to do with. Um, and, you know, because we need that accountability uh, and honesty. And so the last thing we want to do is to start kind of going backwards from that place. And, you know, so that's what we need to be looking at. There's something that shocks me when you look at this in the context of other areas, such as you know, other parts of engineering, for example, where the commissioning process, understanding whether something is meeting the spec and how well it's meeting the spec, understanding what the caveats are, the uncertainties, uh, the gaps. You know, that's something that we do in other parts of life when we hand a project on. I feel that there's a, a, you know, a bit of a lack of maturity in some of the kind of excited discussion in the tech world around, um, around AI, which is that they still think they're solving a knotty math problem or a knotty you know, software problem. Um, and, and we're not actually thinking about, well, you know, in a social context, when we take it out of um, our, you know, 
our little domain and put it into a real world context, then what does that caveat mean or what does that uncertainty mean and who's responsible for it? So I think there needs to be a much clearer sense of who is signing off on what um, and particularly owning content, I think, is one of the best ways to drive that. Because if you have to put your name on it, you'll start asking a whole load of different questions. Um, and, and, you know, as, as you would as an author, um, if you were asked to put your name on someone else's paper. So I think that's where we need to go. We need to be looking much more at, our, you know, creatorship, authorship um, and those other uh, sort of, I suppose, social guarantors that we have. And indeed, so you're talking about the responsibility of anyone who produces content, but there's a responsibility there for the companies developing these chatbots in the first place. Yeah, and we don't, I mean, obviously, we don't want to um, demonize everything that's going on here. There are some, uh, as I say, some of them rather esoteric and narrow, but very important um, uh, problems that can be solved by the kind of computing power that we're talking about. Um, but we do need to be really clear, particularly because the, the, I suppose the period of time between development and implementation has become very short. You know, if you compare it to a medical context where you develop a drug, um, you know, it goes through a whole load of hurdles. And we've spent years since the 1960s developing more of those hurdles to try to make sure that drugs that harm people aren't released. Um, and, and it seems here we sort of forget all about that and, um, and just go, yeah, let's take it straight to market. Um, we're not really looking at what are the quality checks along the way. And there needs to be some, um, some sort of more grown up discussion, I think, about what's needed there. Well, Tracy Brown with Sense About Science, thank you very much. And, you know, when it comes to confidence in information, it hasn't been at a very high point for long. And that's before AI came into the scene. And October 2022, Gallup poll found that just 34% of Americans trust media to report the news fully, accurately, and fairly. Gina Chua, executive editor with the startup news platform Semaphore, you already brought up a key idea for helping build trust in chatbots, which is to focus on what they do well, and that's to work with language. It's a language model, ChatGPT, not a fact model. So why does that matter to how we use it and to the information it produces? Well, I mean, I think you would lay some of the blame of this on the companies that have set up the systems, right? Because they've been presented as sort of answer machines and they're not answer machines, they're language machines. And, and there's a huge difference between two. And I've played with various versions of chatbots, you know, from GPT-4 to BARD to, to Bing and to Claude. And, you know, you, you ask simple questions like, you know, add two numbers and, you know, sometimes they'll get it right and sometimes they'll get it wrong. And that's not their fault. They weren't built to add numbers. They can't. And in fact, I asked uh, GPT-4, you know, tell me about adding numbers. And it says, you know, I can't do it. What I, what I do is I take what you've asked me as a text input and I give you an answer that sounds plausible. Um, and so there's no secrecy about it except in the interface it looks like you're talking to you know, a human being on the other side, or at least a really smart machine. So the, the core problem on, the, on all of these is that they don't have any sense of verification. They're coming up with answers that essentially mimic the information they've been fed. And I think no matter what you give them, and I think that you know, what NewsGuard is doing is, is a fantastic initiative to improve the, the quality of the information they give. But at the end of the day, they don't, 
distinguish very well between what is true and what is false. They simply say what is plausible based on the information they've been given. So there's, I think there's two things that come out of that. One is that they are very good at language. And because of that, we can use them for all sorts of things. We can use them because they pass language well to understand queries in a way that, um, you know, that if you have sort of a string of essentially algebraic Boolean search, you know, most people don't do that very well. Most people ask questions in English quite well, and these machines can help. So I think that that's a big democratizing factor. And then the flip side of it is I was talking to a Microsoft data scientist the other day, and I was talking about the training data set. And he said, well, you know, look, the training data set isn't going to ultimately reduce hallucinations hugely. What it does do, if you constrain it to a data set, it's a pretty good search engine on that set. And so if you look at what Microsoft has been doing now with um, what they call Copilot, which is GPT-4 in the um, Office suite, you know, you can you can feed in a huge corpus of stuff that you have in, you know, um, Outlook or Teams or PowerPoint. And you can say summarize that information. You can say, you know, pull out the action items we were supposed to do or pull out sort of the likely questions that haven't been answered yet. And it does those things pretty well. So I think part of the problem is humanity at large, which is, you know, all of us looking at these things. And, and I think, as Gordon said, we anthropomize anthropomize, I can't say it correctly, um, and, you know, when we think of them as, as humans, and they're not. Um, and, and the other side of it, which is, I think, how they've been designed is to make us think that they're human. And I think both, both sides bear some blame here, because essentially, if we turned it into, you know, uh, if, we, if it looked more like Google Maps, we would actually trust it as we don't go to Google Maps and say, tell me a good restaurant. And we sort of do, but we don't, right? We say, tell me where the restaurant's near us. And so part of this is, I think, a huge design issue, and it's a huge um, civil society conversation issue that we're not having, and we have to have. Well, and you know, too, you, you brought up something which is interesting, which is the way we anthropomorphize these 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 uh, machines, these these tools. And in fact, you've tested one of them, a chatbot named Claude. So that only kind of encourages us to think of these things as human beings. And you asked Claude to edit a story about Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Tell us how well it did. It well, it did. It did. I mean, again, this this is a this is a language machine, and it does style very well. It wasn't the the DeSantis one was interesting. What I did was I asked it to um, to edit a story about China trying to reverse its um, its population decline, um, and I introduced a few errors in it and so on, so that I could test the quality of it. And I ran it through, uh, in this case, Claude, which is the the AI tool built by Entropic. And um, and I asked it to edit it in the style of the New York Times, and it did a pretty good job of that. Added background, the style was right. I asked it to edit it in the style of the New York Post, and it became much racier and, and pacier, and it was still pretty good. And then I asked it to edit it in the style of Fox News, and the, uh, the, 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 the lead on it was, you know, China's trying to reverse its falling birth rate. Is communism to blame? Um, which I have to say is, is a very good... Um, you know, channeling of uh, of the vibe of Fox News, um, and you know, look, I mean, so that was it was basically kind of a test, and it was fun as an exercise. Um, but it, I think it tells you about some of what the power of these machines are, the ability for it to take a story, 
And if you simply constrain it to that, you don't ask it, you know, what's the distance from the earth to the moon? You don't ask it who is the current president, but you simply say, look, here's a piece of text. I would like to do this with the text. I think that's the best use of it. And, and I realize I'm swimming against the tide here, but the more we can do um, both as an industry and, and as a society to start understanding what it does well and what it does badly, um, you know, the, the sooner we get to a good place on this, both in terms of taking advantage of the tools as well as minimizing the harms that it will bring. Well, Gina Chua with Semaphore, you, you've talked about the ways that ChatGPT and AI will have important roles in newsrooms. And I want to turn to Mary Ellen Bates to ask her about the appearances we can expect it to make in corporate information centers and specialized libraries. Mary Ellen Bates with Bates Information Services, you've actually proposed uh, on your blog some practical uses of ChatGPT for information professionals and researchers. What was your assessment of, of how well these chatbots perform and, and, and what do you think is the proper expectation that researchers should have for, for the results? Um, yeah, I, I, I like following on to what Gina said that, you know, this is, it's not something that's thinking, it's looking at what's plausible. And so I think that's one of the most important things for researchers and uh, information professionals to keep in mind when they're doing research is that this is simply, you know, what you're looking at that's most plausible. It's doing simple text and data mining, you know, looking for frequencies, looking for connections among ideas or concepts. And that in itself is perhaps somewhat useful. Um, the, the biggest limitation that I see in, in using generative AI in a research context is that a chatbot doesn't have context. It, it might, you might be able to give it a follow-up question to tell it a little more context, but it doesn't tell you what it doesn't know about the question. And so, for example, um, it can't look, listen to your question and say, it sounds like you're assuming that X, Y, Z, is that actually true? Or any biases that, that are built into the question? Or what are the ambiguities that are in that question that aren't obvious on its face? Or, or even, I mean, this is one of the things that, that corporate li librarians and researchers do so well is we look at the context, who's asking the question? Is this someone who's in a marketing function and needs to know that kind of information? Is this an R&D scientist who has to get peer-reviewed articles? Is it for someone in the C-suite who's developing a slide deck for investors and is looking for a few bullet points? Having all that knowledge about what are you going to do with the results of my research? A chatbot never asks that question. It's never curious. It never wants to know where you're coming from. You know, what, what are you trying to get here? And until that happens, I think we, we all need to remember that that's its approach. And therefore, keeping in mind that it, that it doesn't understand anything about the world or the question that you're asking other than a, as a prediction, then I think it's very useful for get me identify some leading authors on this topic. So I can do that and get a, a really decent list of 10 leading authors. If there's, you know, a, a sentence or two of why each person is considered a leading name and where they published and that sort of thing. So as a place to start, I, I think that chat GPTs and search bots can, can serve a, a nice purpose. Um, one of the, the dirty secrets of, of research is that often we don't know where we're going when we start. We're kind of flailing around and, 
you know, waiting to see what what shows up or what we see in our peripheral vision. Um, I think that a chatbot can do a good job at seeing the peripheral vision, sort of getting a picture of the whole landscape and telling us that. So anything that requires a kind of look at the tell me some big trends in this field. I get some decent trends. You know, it's again, it's nothing that's in depth that you could make a decision based on, but it gives me some starting points. In fact, I tried asking it, I was doing research in an area that I wasn't familiar with. And I said, what are the aspects of this market that I should consider? And I got a decent list of six or eight different aspects. And you know, I probably would have come up with them all eventually, but it was really nice to get them in three and a half seconds. And then I had sort of a, a, a an order list of where I needed to go next. So I, again, I, I look at a chatbot as a nice paraprofessional who's helpful, can scan the, you know, has, who's, who is, has more time than I do to, you know, do sort of grunt work. And this is what it will come up with. And then I will still assume that I'm still dealing with a paraprofessional and it needs to be reviewed by a professional afterward. Um, I, I think the other thing to keep in mind is my feeling is all of these discussions about, about chatbots are going to be irrelevant in a year because I believe that, that chatbots are going to disappear. Just like, do you remember when Google, Google was initially learning how to do um, speech recognition and it had Google 411, at least in the US, where you could call up a number on your phone, speak an address, and it would give you the directions to, the, to, that, to that location. And it, it was a lovely service. It lasted for about a year and then completely disappeared. And it was because that was the time that Google needed to get familiar with all the different American accents and ways that, that people speak. I think that all of the chatbots that we're seeing now are, it's the same thing, although it has much more societal cost and danger than, you know, than Google learning how to understand how we speak. But I think that as soon as these these chatbots, you know, get calibrated a little bit better based on all of our unpaid, you know, I feel like I'm a Tesla self-drive test case here, you know, where we're all the ones seeing the damage and other people are going to take what we learned and then put it, make it better, whatever that means, and then bury it in and we won't see it again. It'll be hidden behind applications that need a, a good 17-year-old to be responding. Right. And, and you make a point that has come up in my other conversations with uh, the panel, which is that this is all moving very fast indeed, and it's not in our control. That really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's not in our control now, and it will be even less in our control soon. And so um, I think it's useful to find the ways that it seems to be helpful, but not. I'm, I'm not counting on you know, building any new research techniques based on search bots, because I just am not confident that they'll continue to be around in a queryable format like they are today. Well, Mary Ellen Bates with Bates Information Services, thank you so much for that. And I want to bring back the, the panel and sort of continue the conversation. I think I've already sort of begun to sharpen my view of this thing, which is to Gina's point that it is not a fact model. We can't treat it that way. It's a, it's a language model. And, and also to what Gordon and Stephen have said, which is there are ways to train all of this. And 
And to Tracy's point that we need to train ourselves as well as to how we think about these machines and what they are offering us. So it's been very helpful to me to start to think about these things in new ways. And so these Internet forums uh, often do not have representation for the various voices that are so important to understanding the world today. Uh, women, people of color, and so forth are underrepresented. And that can lead to uh, implicit biases in all of the output. Uh, I, I would imagine that's a concern here for, for us. Tracy Brown, have you thought about that, about the sources and, and, and the questions of equity that come up? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the... Um, so. so- there's a there's a whole issue here. I mean, when you start looking at this in a medical context and people Googling medical questions, which is um, a huge use of Google. Um, and what concerns me, I, I'm really struck by something that Gina wrote about this, which is kind of, let's just think about this like a supercharged search engine. And then we start to have a better sort of mental picture of what we're talking about. But one of the concerns is it's not just this sort of humanoid um, presentation of um, what you're getting in your response, but also over curated responses. So I don't know if you, if you know now, if you do search on something medical, um, you'll often get these kind of synopsis pieces where you don't even bother going to the website to see that information in context. You see, oh, this is Google now I'm talking about, you see, you know, just the summary. And a few times I've been doing this for stuff that Sense About Science has been dealing with misinformation about medical stuff. And, and you find actually it's identified the opposite um, so it's identified the things you shouldn't do rather than the things you should do. Um, and it's presented that in a s- sort of synopsis box. So I'm concerned that um, we keep at the level of here are here are your broad results rather than um, here's a curated answer. Um, <clears throat> but I think that I think we do have a, a, an issue with, um, you know, thinking about this. When I talk about feedback, what is it that we're using to determine whether the, these chatbots are getting it right you know, if you have, uh, if you're spending a lot of time um, looking at something, that's always been the thing in the past. You know, the public's quite sorted out about saying things like, don't click on the link because that will just drive up the Google rankings. That's what people know now. Um, we've got a new set of problems, haven't we? So is, are these actually evaluating whether they gave us what we wanted um, based on how long we spent looking at it? You know, we have that phenomenon that people love for some reason, looking at strange skin conditions um, and the gorier, the better. And so you now can imagine a scenario where you're looking to find examples of how a condition you have, how it progresses. And you're going to get the most gory uh, set of pictures because that's what apparently people spent their time looking at. So we have to think about, you know, on what basis is this machine learning um, and deciding, you know, in future what it's learned from our exposing us to certain sets of results that's that's something that i think we need to have some real transparency around and um, think about how we as a society you know use that in thinking about what we're being fed these models uh for 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 large-scale information said the ceo of OpenAI, sam altman uh is, is is really uh you know source of concern he's he's already worried about it himself and he says they're, they're getting better at writing code um, but there will be people who don't put some of the safety limits on that they claim they put on. So what about safety limits on these models? Uh, Gordon or Stephen, do you have a sense of, of, of how that would work? How can we begin to put some guardrails up so that the information, um, apart from the tools that you have at NewsGuard, just to know that, they're, that, that we're, we're, we're going to be safe when we are using these tools? 
I think it starts with an expectation that the people behind the tools are taking some responsibility for what they have produced. We talked earlier about transparency being a requirement and accountability being a goal and how both of those are currently absent from the approach. Sam Altman himself has said, essentially, please regulate me. I know that my uh, chat GPT will spew disinformation. I know that's true. Please regulate me. Rather than in other industries, there would be a sense of accountability before I unleash a tool onto the public. Let's see if we can't put in place some guardrails. And guardrails are possible. Um, OpenAI has said that it's trained its chat GPT on some specific uh, uh, content, including copywritten photographs that it's purchased the rights to use, some scientific information that's not available on the free internet um, in order to deliver less unreliable uh, responses. And I, I think that's going to have to happen or should happen in all kinds of domains, uh, not just news, but scientific and other areas as well. And just to make a point, Chris, and, and this has come up, but just to, to make clear to our audience, as Murray Allen said, we've gotten used to using tools, whether it's Google or Bing Search or Activa or Nexus or Alexis or Westlaw or ProQuest, you know, whatever it might be. And the results that we expect to see are a selection of relevant articles from brands we may be familiar with. And if we're not familiar with, we can try to figure out how authoritative they are. And as end users, as researchers or people looking for stuff in the news, whatever the case may be, we're used to the idea of who, who's behind this? What source is that? Should I trust it? Should I click on this result from the BBC or this result from RT, Russia Today? Which one is likely to be accurate? That's entirely missing in the current user experience with the chatbots, where instead of getting a series of citations, we get a declarative answer, often hallucination, as they put it, meaning false. And that's, you know, I think really unsustainable and needs to be Let me just add one thing, if I can. Uh, Gordon mentioned that uh, uh, that Sam Altman at OpenAI had, had had literally written or said, uh, you know, please regulate me. Um, there's nothing that stops him from regulating himself. Often, uh, the companies, especially the tech companies, that say, you know, gee, we need regulation, uh, they know the regulation isn't going to happen, but nothing stops them from getting up in the morning and saying, you know, we're going to regulate ourselves. You know, just the way the editor of, uh, you know, any publication has said, I don't need the government to censor me. I'm an editor. I'm going to regulate what I do. Um, that is, you know, the height of, of uh, you know, passing the ball. Um, they could regulate themselves and they could start by explaining exactly what sources they do use and what sources uh, they could use. Uh, we announced about an hour and a half ago that we're going to offer um, for all of uh, these companies uh, the kind of audit that we did uh, for chat uh, version four, which is uh, we'll take uh, random samples of our misinformation fingerprints, uh, the narratives, and uh, we'll tell these companies um, internally um, 
where they're failing and where they're succeeding. You know, what percent of uh, these false narratives uh, their machines will readily uh, repeat? One of the lessons of the web for the last 20 years is it's given the tools of publishing to everyone, um, not just to gatekeepers, but to us all. And in a way, this is returning to a democratization of, of, of media because the, you've described that um, the, the news we read, the information we get can be curated for us individually. And, and I'd like you to share a little bit more about that vision, that vision of an AI uh, assisted AI boosted uh, newsroom. So, look, I don't want to sound like I'm the, I can't remember now, Pollyanna or Cassandra. I don't want to sound like I'm the over optimist on this, but I do think that there are some, some good um, things that will come of this. And I think there's some horrific dangers that we have to be clear about. I think, you know, one of, I did write a piece a little while back that said that one of the problems we have with using uh, chatbots as our search engines is that it essentially it summarizes and it summarizes without citation. And what we could be doing, we could simply improve the Google experience dramatically by having rather than, than links and little, and little um, snippets by summarizing those articles, but also then having the citation or the, the source. And then frankly, if we had something like NewsGuard, and I know Gordon and Steve, you are doing that, you know, and having a rating on that. I mean, you could see how that, that, um, experience would at the very least allow people to think about what they're getting as opposed to right now you ask a question it gives you a nice authoritative sounding answer that's frankly a slightly worse experience than the current google experience which which by itself isn't great which is a bunch of links that i have to click on to read um, and so i think you can get to a good point i do think though that that you know speaking to the point of democratization that if again, if you if you stop thinking about this as a um, you know as an information system, but as instead as a language system, there are all sorts of users that that come to mind. You know, one of the things again, I, I wrote a piece yesterday um, about um, how Microsoft is thinking about integrating this with Excel. Now, I happen to love Excel because I'm a nerd, um, but it does take some time to learn how to use it. If you had a tool that allowed people to speak essentially in English um, and have it build spreadsheets for you, you again, you can think about this, the, the, the improvements in at least uh, accessibility for people, right? Exactly the same way that if you thought about how you used to have to build a website by learning HTML and coding it up yourself, and then a whole bunch of tools came along, and now any of us can throw up a website in five minutes. That's the, that's the potential improvement and democratization of access to tools that would otherwise be more complex to use. It also, of course, adds to the issue of disinformation and, and more people having access to more publishing platforms or more powerful tools. But to some extent, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a gatekeeping or a gate-kept uh, world where only certain people are allowed to do things and others don't, because we've had that world. It's not such a great world. Um, and a world where more people can do things, but at the same time, that obviously leads to more potential for more damage. Well, just yesterday, the Future of Life Institute, which is about transformative technology and steering it towards benefiting life and away from risk, issued an open letter. They called for a pause on these giant AI experiments. Elon Musk has signed that letter. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. And just in, the, in a minute or two, I want to ask the panel, if anybody here 
has signed that letter or thinks it's a good thing to do to sign that letter? Or is that letter just, just, just part of all the hype that we're experiencing? Anyone want to sign that open letter to pause AI development? They're calling on all AI labs to, to just stop for six months so we can begin to reflect. And they're also asking policymakers to become more involved. What, what, what do you think of that? I, I wish it could happen. I don't think there's any way in hell it will actually happen. But it would be, a, I mean, it would be a good idea. I mean, I think the, the chance of... Uh, not to be not to be dramatic, the chance of um, of uh, you know a sort of a smart AI machine wiping out humanity is not zero, and uh, and it probably isn't going to come to that. But but the chance of something really bad happening as it gets more ability to control the the, the interfaces and the devices of the world that we live in, I think is you know that's a real issue, and we should really think about that. Tracy Brown, what about that letter? Would you sign that, or have you thought? Yeah, about that? you know, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant about that. I, partly because I'm not optimistic that the six months would um, is going to turn a whole lot around. Um, I, I'd be more interested in hearing the ideas for turning stuff around than the pause. Um, but I, I am concerned that um, you know pe- people's imaginations are firing about uh, you know, as Gina said, you know, wiping things out. I suspect that the way that we'd wipe stuff out is with banal error rather than with evil intent, you know? And, and it does concern me, for example, we live in a situation where major banks aren't completely sure how they're making decisions about who's creditworthy because it's become a bit black box. And, you know, we're looking at banks collapsing on, on a, a bit of a rumour and a realisation that, that they don't quite know what's going on under the hood. <clears throat> so, you know, in, in a febrile atmosphere like that, where people's pension funds can get wiped out, um, by a, a sudden kind of collapse of an internal system in a bank, um, we need to think about what could be the implication of rolling out error. Uh, and as I say, it could be a mundane thing, but rolling out error, losing a record, destroying a whole bunch of stuff that didn't look important but suddenly turned out to be. You know, those are the things that that concern me about this and, and just our absence of a conversation um, about any of those things and people in serious positions of authority, you know, government commissioning, um, for example, um, in, in information services and uh, banking and, and so on, who really don't actually understand what the tools are that they're using. Well, Tom Chatfield has written books about uh, all of this, the culture of video games and the nature of political activism. He's uh, calls himself a tech philosopher, and in a Twitter thread last week that has 28,000 views, Tom Chaffield noted that AI's bottomless fluency encourages us to treat words as fungible content, more interchangeable vessels for information. We are indeed creating new forms of intelligence, utterly unlike our own, Chatfield wrote, mindless, diffuse, abstract intelligence, something in but not of our world, something that deserves curious skeptical, rigorous, precise engagement. And it's certainly my hope that today's CCC Town Hall, ChatGPT and Information Integrity has appealed to your curiosity, your skepticism, and your engagement. And if it has, that's entirely because of my guests. Stephen Brill and Gordon Krovitz with NewsGuard, Tracy Brown with Sense About Science, Gina Chua with Semaphore, and Mary Ellen Bates of Bates Information Services. Thank you all. Rob Simon of Burst Marketing is our director. Thanks as well to my CCC colleagues, Joanna Murphy-Scott, Amanda Ribeiro, Haley Sund, and Molly Tainer. Stay informed on the latest developments in publishing and research by subscribing to CCC's Velocity of Content blog and podcast. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye for now. 